Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. We're here with Anthony Thomas of Sticker Mule. I guarantee you that if you've been to a conference or seen any developers who have their laptops plastered with stickers, that you've seen Sticker Mule's product, which is stickers. Thanks for joining us, Anthony. Thanks. Glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background before starting Sticker Mule. Yes. So I uh, went to RPI, graduated in 2004, and from there, like, went pretty much straight into a manufacturing job. Like, anyone that is familiar with RPI knows it's like an engineering school, but it's got more of a like manufacturing, like physical product slant than um, like a Stanford or MIT. So I kind of got oriented in that direction and uh, went right into manufacturing after school. Ended up working under a pretty like sharp COO for about five or six years without getting too deep into like our, our origin story. Like really through that experience and through my relationship with him when he retired I ended up uh, also leaving about a year after and using that background to start Sticker Mule. Okay, so uh, what was the drive then to go from this manufacturing role that you had to starting Sticker Mule? <laughs> so, I mean, I think it was just like we, when I like I joined the company, it was like a pretty interesting experience for myself. Like we had to go through a pretty thorough restructuring. Like I actually like lived through um, the recession of like 2008, which like rocked manufacturing pretty hard. So that was like an interesting experience. And, you know, we went through restructuring the whole company. And at the time, that organization didn't really have a e-commerce front end or they, they did things in a more traditional way, like most manufacturers to this day still kind of like do things in a more traditional way where you're working with salespeople and distribution partners and going after like big contracts. And I wanted to like build a more direct relationship with our customers. So like what was frustrating for me, like during that experience was just like not having control over customers. And part of the reason why like the, uh, like we got stuck in a position of having a restructuring beyond a recession was just that we were so dependent on our partners and our sales force and not really being oriented towards sales or marketing or anything like that. And like really just being deep in the manufacturing. I wanted to, I thought it was interesting to have a, uh, the idea of a company where manufacturing is connected directly to customers and the quality of the manufacturing, the quality of the customer experience, like drove success more so than being reliant on uh, like salespeople and like sales processes and par- like landing large partnerships to ensure your success. So yeah, so around 2010, like just um, like started talking more about this with uh, like a friend of mine and we ended up starting Sticker Mail. Okay. And so did you end up seeing other companies that were using tech to enable this bridge from manufacturing and then uh, having this middleman to cutting out the middleman and going straight to the customer? I mean, I think I saw like at the time, like every, you know, a lot of stuff was migrating towards the internet at the time. Like my like example companies were like Cafe Press and Zazzle, which was, which are definitely taking a different approach than like what we did with a more like really small quantity and, you know, design online tool and like going after mass market and like consumers, whereas we wanted to go after more like middle market businesses and consumers that wanted to place somewhat larger orders. But yeah, like at the time, like Zazzle and Cafe Press were kind of like our example of somebody was doing something like that similar like what we wanted to do, but we had, we had our own um, kind of like take on how we wanted to go about doing it. What was the background of your friend that you were going to start this? Oh, yeah, so my, my, my friend was actually like the COO at like uh, my prior employer and he retired 
around the age of like 68 and like without spending too much time on the origin story. Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk about the origin story. It's just a little bit uh, lengthy, but I'll try and condense it. So like, it sounds a little crazy. My uh, co-founder was like a pretty experienced chief operating officer, had done it almost, been in operations almost his whole life, done everything from like 500 person company, you know, three to 500 to 1000 person operations. And um, he actually had like made it through his whole career without really touching the internet. So he retired like about a year before me and, you know, we stayed friends. And one day uh, he had finally gotten a computer, like just before Christmas time, you know, we were talking and he was asking me, (laughs) you know, like really how to like navigate his computer. And I started BSing and saying, well, you know, hey, it'd be really cool if like a manufacturing company had a, had a web presence, if we, you know, to have a manufacturing company with a web presence, because we'd have a direct relationship with our customers and me and him both, I think, found the reliance on salespeople and partnerships frustrating. And I was like, hey, this would be a way around that. But, you know, I would just be asking with him as something that I thought would be kind of cool and like would, would solve like a problem that we had during our careers. And uh, he was like, well, what do people do on the internet? And I like, I, I opened up a computer and I showed him Cafe Press and Zazzle. And uh, he was like, okay, that's great. That's interesting. Thanks for showing me that. And, you know, I didn't really make much of the conversation. I didn't think he did either. And then the next day he came and saw me and he was like, you know, I, I thought all what you said, and I, want, I want to start a company with you if you'd be interested in doing it and would commit to it. You know, I would be like an investor and I would work on this with you. So <laughs> that's our, that's like the genesis of where we went. And like from that conversation, we ended up launching Sticker Mule, I think three or four months later. Wow, that would be great if every time somebody asked me for tech help, it ended up me starting a company with them. <laughs> but um, yeah, <laughs> sorry for not just coming out and like explaining that better. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I, that's that's great. Um, so you came into this then though as a uh, you know non-technical person. You're not a developer, yep. that's right. Yeah. So like, actually, I mean, neither of us, like me and my co-founder, like he hadn't even like used the internet, which like you know everyone that worked him early on, you know, founder and using, but like, you know, he had never used the internet and, you know, I had never like touched software. I didn't know how to write code. I didn't know how to do web design. I wasn't a designer. I, I can hardly um, write neatly, let alone like draw anything. Um, <laughs> like, I'm somewhat aesthetically challenged, but like, yeah. So I remember, you know, talking to him and saying like, you know, when he said, Hey, I want to do this with you. My first comment was like, well, you know, I, it was great what I was saying yesterday, but realistically, like, how would we do this? Because like, we have no background in anything related to this. And his response was, if you look at a com- like the companies you showed me yesterday, it's Cafe Press and Zazzle. He's like, they definitely don't have like years of manufacturing experience and operations experience because they're probably software developers that are like have the technical end of things mastered, but they don't have the, the manufacturing experience mastered. And, and they're figuring that out as they go. And he's like, so we just have to figure out what the other end of things, which is like, we already have a uh, operational background. We got to figure out the front end like software design and development component of like building this, the business that we had in mind. So like that, that comment like made a lot of sense to me. It's just like, think in business or, you know, and, and any, you know, yeah, business or in life, like you're, you're constantly like learning new things. And it's just, you know, when he put it that way, it's like learning the technical end of things, just a new challenge that we were going to have to figure out how to master. So should a non-technical person learn how to code then? Yeah. So like I struggled with this question early on. I'd say like up until about a year ago, I always like regretted like not learning how to code and thought like, you know, it would have been beneficial if I should have. And like even like wondered, okay, should I spend some time doing this? And my answer now, I think is leans, leans towards like, no, because it's like to be good at anything, you need to work at it relentlessly for a few years. 
And if you're starting your company, if you're already at the point where you're starting your company and you're not already a, a technical person, like you have more important things to work on and, the, and you're, you're realistically never going to become a strong technical person and like jumping in and trying to help out in that way. I think it's going to like, like slow your company down more than more than help it. Like what's more important if you're at the point of like actually starting your company is to find like a strong technical lead that you can like rely on, you know, and count on to own that aspect of your business while you go and like focus on other things. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've started to, I think change my perspective on that a lot lately as I've observed some really extraordinarily strong non-technical people lead extraordinarily successful technical teams. And as you said, you really have to focus on this one thing. And we talked with Dave Hoover a while back um, about Dev Bootcamp. And, you know, he's very much of the opinion that if you're going to learn to do software, you really have to just drop all these other ideas that you have for a few years. And even then, you're not necessarily looking at becoming an engineer per se. You know, you're becoming just a somebody that's able to take this idea and then finally at this point act on it. And I mean, would you have put off your company for three years? Like what would that have done to you? Yeah. I mean, it, it just wouldn't have made sense. I think if you're early in your life and you're thinking like, you know, Hey, you have like entrepreneurial drive, like it's, it's like makes sense to, to get a technical background. It certainly would have made uh, my job easier. Even if I wasn't writing code to have a deeper understanding and deeper appreciation for that, for that end of things. But like once you're at that point, it's kind of like the point of no return. You're never going to become good enough at it to be a good contributor. If, you know, if you could somehow manage to not sleep and pick up some things, like I try to learn as much as I can and like gain as deep of appreciation of like, you know, software development as I can. But, um, I gave up the idea of like trying to become a strong technical person just because like we're fortunate in that like most of our team or like our, our lead developers on our team all have like 10 plus years of experience and like where they've been working at this relentlessly really and, and really make it the one thing that they you know they try to be good at and it's like there's no way i'm going to catch up to them <laughs> right right so it does make sense that you don't have enough time to become an expert at being a developer did you see any benefit or did you build any basic background in tech or did you find that also a distraction i think like you have to like you know, time's like limited and you have to like use your time wisely. So like my attitude has always been like, if there's something worthwhile to do, I do it. But you know, at some point in time, like in, in any job, I think you run out of like really useful things to do. And there's days where I go to, you know, go to work even early on. People say, Oh, you're so busy starting a company, but there's not always like high impact things to do. And like during my downtime, I try to pick up as much as I can. Like I tried to like develop like an understanding of like basic things like get and, uh, you know, basic HTML, CSS, and just some, you know, rudimentary stuff so I can at least have a sensible conversation or, uh, you know, learn more about software development processes. And, you know, I, I try to learn as much as I can <laughs> within the time I have. And I, I found that to be helpful. I don't think you should totally, like, neglect learning anything. I, I think your team appreciates you making the effort to try and learn as much as you can, like recognizing you're never going to become, you know, as good as them. <laughs> And just a side note on that, too, do you find that even if you're not able to fully empathize with a developer, are you able to at least empathize a little bit more uh, with, you know, pushback and things like that? Oh, for sure. Like, I think over time, like one thing I've gotten to pretty good at is like, for whatever reason, even though I can't like write the code, I, you know, I try to, I guess you just like look for patterns and, you know, and try to like 
be able to guess like how difficult something is <laughs> before you hand it off to somebody. And you know, I think like over time I've gotten better at that, even though I'm not actually like writing the code. Like, you know, I think just, just through like work, you know, through working with your team, you can get an understanding of like an, an empathy for like what people are trying to achieve and like how much time it's going to take and how difficult it's going to be for them to solve like what you're asking them to work on. But that, that's something like you have to work on as like a non-technical person that's like working with, you know, developers is like, you know, putting effort towards thinking through that and like getting an understanding and trying to like look for patterns, even though you don't, you're not actually writing the code, like look for patterns of like what, when can, what's going to be something difficult versus something easy. Could you dig into that a little bit? Like how you develop that ability and how you think about what's difficult and what's not difficult? It's a little hard to say. Like it kind of just like came to be, you know, came to me personally, like naturally over time. But I, I think it's like the less clear something is the longer it's going to take to develop. Like if, if you can make something like very clear and the concepts like easy to understand, it's going to be easy to develop. And I, I've seen other people working with developers, even myself, like at times, like, you know, you hand off things that are somewhat vague or you're just like, like I want to like, for example, something simple, like I want to add PayPal to checkouts and be like, you know, checklist here, add PayPal to checkout. You just go to the developer and say like, do that. It's like, well, well, at what part of the checkout do you add PayPal? And like, to what, like, which, uh, you know, how far do you go with the PayPal integration? Do you do basic integration? Is it on the cart? Is it at the end of the checkout? Like, you know, so I think like the more like simple and concrete, like what you're explaining to somebody is like generally the easier it's going to be for them, for them to figure out how to, how to implement. Right. Absolutely. And without going to like Donald Rumsfeld on it, you know, you've got, if something is not very clear and you have all these unknown unknowns, it's very difficult yes. for you to be able to figure out what time it's going to take, you know? Yeah. I think like non-developers, I said, you know, even myself early on, sometimes, you know, I, I think like fortunately like software development progressed a bit and I don't know the extent to which developers still did still deal with this, but I know like earlier in my life and earlier in my career, especially before sticker mill, I remember people used to do software development where business people just handed like checklists of things that they wanted to their developers. And they were like, here's all the features we want this thing to do. And they were just like these quick, like one sentence things that were like, you know, just go build this, like with no like mock-ups, no real in-depth things. Like, we wanted to do this and this and this. I, mean, I remember, um, like my, this is my prior job, but I remember at one point we were working with software developers and we had, I, I went through like an ERP implementation and there was a guy, like, like this, the CFO in the organization was like, I want to be able to click a button that like spits out the month end report. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, what does that mean? Like, okay, that's a bit like, you know, ridiculous. A little vague. <laughs> yeah. The analogy we like ahead, to use is that it's like asking someone, I want to, telling someone you want to build a house without, you know, you're not, you're not really giving them a blueprint. You're just saying, I want a house with a couple bedrooms and you're kind of leaving them to figure out you know fill everything else in between yep so given that you are non-technical uh how did you then build this technical team as a non-technical person like with a bit of luck <laughs> so <laughs> you know, like when we got started like you know I, I realized we wanted somebody like really strong from the get-go and it wasn't like really obvious, like how you go about finding that person, but I, I had already been familiar with like open source, um, and, and thought like what people were doing in like an open source was, was interesting. So, you know, we got lucky at the time that we got started, um, this, uh, open source e-commerce platform named, uh, Spree Commerce was, uh, just starting to get traction. And a few people had gotten together and, and they had literally just formed a consulting company 
around it, like the um, original like core team had formed to consult around it. You know, around the same time we started, or a few weeks after. So I, I contacted them immediately, like realizing that you know if they're just getting started, there's an opportunity we could actually get some attention from these guys because they haven't gotten tremendous traction yet. But like what they were doing seemed good. They had a Google group going that I was like reading through, and I was like, wow, these guys seem like really bright guys. That would be cool to work with. So I reached out to them, and they uh, agreed to take us on as clients, and we worked with them for about a year and towards the end of the year like the developer that i was working like most closely with they they got vc and the developer i was working most closely with decided instead of going the vc route and getting into a vc-backed company kind of like liked our i don't know somehow i managed to convince them to come join us nice yeah well that's definitely uh like coup for you absolutely yeah so um we were fortunate to get to get him on board and he ended up being our first lead person and really helped know shape the trajectory of work where we went as a company and as a tech team so i i'd like you to take me back just a little bit to here so you said that you were familiar with open source prior to this but it's funny i mean you know i'm trying to imagine you know anthony back before starting sticker mule as this like supposedly non-technical guy who's like interested in open source (laughs) conceptually i mean just explain that to me yeah, I mean, I was fortunate. I went to, um, I was fortunate I went to RPI, which is like an engineering school. Like I, uh, uh, I actually was an engineer as a business student, but, um, I went there as like a strong engineering culture. And, and I think that school just gives you a deep appreciation for engineering. And RPI is more geared towards like hardware engineering, mechanical engineering, electrical and things like that. But it still gives you a deep respect for just engineers and engineering and you know i, I kind of like realized when i was there that maybe that's like i don't know i guess to say like old school engineering and like the the the, the engineers of the future were, were software developers so even though rpi wasn't really a software development school i just this caused me to develop this like you know appreciation and respect for engineers and i saw like software was going to be the future and like so it caused me to you know just build up a respect for software developers and so I just think I just developed like a side interest in, in open source and just found it interesting more. It's just, I think, in the same extent that a lot of people look at the tech world and just like kind of like casual observers, I think it's really exciting, like what's going on in technology, even if they're not necessarily, you know, starting companies or working in technology. There's a lot of people that, that, that think it's interesting. I was, I was kind of like that guy. Yeah. So were you just uh, reading about it on your own or just having conversations with people at school? About yeah, I mean, it? really just, um, well, I mean, this was like, af- you know, after school, I remember like one of my professors at the time saying, you know, like in, in the old days, like what mattered is like literacy and like numeracy, like how well do you read and write and how good are you with numbers and math? And he's like, in the future, it's going to be like, how well can, you know, digitacy or how well can you like navigate the internet and software and technology? So there were some people at RPI even that, that like knew that. And I think I just kind of like carried that with me. And also like when I, when I went to work, you know, I worked in a manufacturing company, which wasn't really modern. I saw like inefficiencies related to that. So like, it, you know, that made, gave me a side interest in, in these sort of things. I also went through like an ERP migration, which like I think enlightened me a bit more to this sort of stuff and, you know, saw us dealing with like kind of like enterprise software vendors and things like that. I think maybe that's what led my, like, you know, I think the combination of all these things just gave me an interest in, in open source and like an, an excitement about it. But so, yeah. Okay. And I'd like to dig in there actually for a second, because you mentioned this ERP migration. Was that process good for you? 
Like, did you like that experience or? Were oh yeah, yeah, it was it was a good experience. It was like, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that was like I we didn't you know back then like when you're doing ERP uh, migrations, you're not necessarily dealing with building software, right? You're like customizing these like existing systems to work for your organization, but it was still like an interesting experience to go through of like working kind of like, I don't know, somehow I ended up becoming somewhat of a conduit between other business users that were like older and the uh, uh, ERP implementers that were like trying to like take what people were saying and turn it into reality. And I, I think that was kind of like maybe the beginning of realizing like, hey, the amount, the amount of clarity you can put behind your ideas and, and, and like getting to the heart of like what problem are you really trying to solve makes everything work a lot better. So I think like what I've seen in like more traditional business people is they tend to say, I want a feature that does this when like really what you have is a problem that you want to solve and you want to solve it in the most elegant way possible. Going back to your first developer that you found on the yep. Spree Commerce team, what do you think led them to work with you? You know, I don't like to like speak to other people. That's not a question I, I ever asked him. I know like personally, I always try to build up as much goodwill as possible with people that I, I work with, like whether it's somebody like on our team or a third party that like is working with us and that we're dependent on. So I, I always put a lot of effort towards trying to like build goodwill with people. I don't know if that's entirely like what did it. I think we also had a similar perspective on like the importance of simplicity and the importance of like a good user experience. He was really into those sort of things. And we were, even though we were new to technology and these topics, like we were executing pretty well on those things early on for whatever reason. So I think, you know, he found that aspect of things interesting. And then, um, you know, I think that without really wanting to speak too much for him, I think that that's a big chunk of what did it. And I think maybe the, like the, the one other thing is this is the disparity between working for a VC back company versus a non VC back company where it's more like low pressure environment than, uh, that you take on funding from venture capitalists. I, I think that also intrigued him because he, he had the option of going the VC route and, found us more interesting. It's good that you don't want to um, speak too quickly for him, but I also think, you know, it's really nice to hear, especially for, you know, somebody like me who's been working as just a technical person for a while and has had people try to approach me about projects, you know, what it was that you felt like worked somehow, even if it's not accurate and he has a different story to tell. I think it's interesting just to hear you know, what it was that you felt like you did right in the relationship. Cause I think that's a side of the story that doesn't get told very often. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that you believe that you got lucky in building out this really excellent tech team early on. But at the same time, you also realized that that first developer was critical to everything else that happened from there. So can you explain to me? why you think that first developer is so critical? Yeah. So I kind of viewed it, I mean, well, having like having gone to like like an engineering school, I, I already got a sense for like engineers, like and, and really smart engineers want to be around other like really smart engineers and they want they want to avoid like more mediocre ones like RPI and I I don't know anyone else, you know, but if, if there's listeners that have ex experienced being in other like engineering programs, but you know, RPI kids are pretty brutal on each other about their their talents and abilities and, uh, and intellect. And so I realized like, you know, if I want like the best people and the best engineers, I, I have to start with like a really good one because like other like really great engineers aren't going to be drawn to like <laughs> working with a mediocre 
uh, engineering team. Right, and that um, makes sense. I, I, I'm not sure if you've read uh, like Steve Newcomb's writing at all. No, I'm not familiar. So he he has this uh, a whole bunch of work that he did on cult creation about like hiring your first startup team, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes for anybody interested. But he talks about you know, hiring A players uh, versus B players and C players. And uh, I'd love to know what you think about this. But his thought was that you really only want to hire the A players, because if you hire a B player, or, you know, a C player, God forbid, then they want to look as good as the A players. And when you're talking about a high growth team and needing to uh, have personal referrals be so important, you can end up having people that will bring on people that are worse than them, to make themselves look better. However, the A player doesn't need to worry about that. The A player is not concerned about bringing somebody on who's worse than them because they're already aware that they're good. Uh, but it's that B player who is cognizant of the fact that they're, you know, not quite the A player that is your uh, <laughs> scariest person to bring on. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear what you have to think about that. Yeah, I mean, I think in all jobs, you, positions, you always want to hire like the best possible people. I think it's even like more critical to do it in software development than in, in, in other positions because in software development, you're, you're building a foundation that other people have to build upon. And so like the work that like if you do bring a B player on board does, it becomes part of your code base for the foreseeable future until somebody else comes along and is willing to like rip it out and, and clean it up. But like, you know, it's not really the case in like other roles in the company. Like the you know the work like other people do doesn't become like a necess- to the same extent as a permanent part of the company. So yeah, it's just that much more critical. I think with software developers to hire hire the best people, and, and I think like in my experience, like the culture of engineers is that they're more determined to work with other talented engineers more so than than like other people. So it's it's even they're not to like belittle other positions and in, in companies but, like a, a great operations guy isn't as concerned about like you know hey is the, is the finance guy great too? <laughs> it's like I'm a great operations guy. That's fine, but I think like. It's it's not going to be a deterrent to him joining your company that if like there's some B players on the team because he's happy with himself and his abilities. Obviously, it plays a role for all people, but I think like I've seen like with, with engineers and and developers, like it's a major deterrent to have less than stellar people on your team to getting great people on because one they you know they don't like the best engineers want to work with other great engineers and two they don't want to inherit a code base that's less than ideal. Right. I think it's interesting that you came to the realization that the code base stays around. And I think that's actually, I mean, even though I'm aware of that, putting it that in that perspective, I think is a fresh way of looking at it. Yeah. I mean, in in a way, like operations guy that's like replacing a bad operations guy might be excited about the job because there's lots of fun things for him to do and like lots of problems for him to, to, to fix or her, you know, it's like exciting where it's a great developer that's coming in. And replacing a mediocre developer is inheriting a huge headache. Right. <laughs> like, although although oh, it's funny. Like, I, it's like could be fun to fix, but yeah, maybe not. Yeah, I, I, I have met a couple of people, though, who like really like rescue projects, and that's yeah. all that they want to do. And I, I fundamentally don't understand it because I want to, yeah. you know, do it right the first time around. But... Yeah. yeah, that's beyond me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for me in operations, it was finding problems, being able to fix them. And operations becomes like a bit boring, like when everything's like working well. But I think software development becomes more exciting when everything's aren't working well. It's easier to get stuff done and move forward. Yeah, and so, once you once you start hiring B and C players, you're you're lowering the bar for new hires. So when you're interviewing someone, you know, you're comparing them to oh, John's you know a B player, so it's now okay to hire another B player. 
So as a non-technical person, how are you able to evaluate a developer, whether they're good or not? Yeah, I think I evaluate you know, all people the same way. And it's like, one, if you're like anyone on our core team, I look for like their ability to make ideas better. And then two, is look for judgment. Three, like how fast can they get things done? Four, how thorough are they? And five, like how well do they work with others? And I think I kind of just look at everybody through that lens, um, whether you're in software development or marketing or operations or customer service. Um, you know, there's, there's some people that can come in and like, you know, when, when there's a discussion about how to solve a problem, like always add to the discussion. And uh, that's always exciting. And just like the ability to have consistently good judgment, like get stuff done fast, be thorough um, and work well with the rest of the team. Like that's like kind of what I, I look look for. So like with our, you know, original developer and I, I worked with like a, a few different people through the, cons- the consultancy that we were with initially because he, he was part of a consultancy and he wasn't the only one we worked with. But I, I just saw that he um, consistently would like take our ideas and make them better than they were, whereas like other people didn't have that same ability. And he just consistently always showed like good judgment, like the ability to like take a vague idea and like run with it. Whereas like, even though it's not what you want to do, like the fact that he could do that was impressive. And he, he got stuff done really fast and he was always like really thorough. Like you see some developers, you know, you, you give them something and the, the specs aren't like perfect, which there's like lots of little like things you need to critique and it, you know, you have this back and forth process. But um, like our original guy that we brought on board, he, uh, you know, this just didn't really happen that way. Everything was always thorough. And like, I think they call it in the military, like <laughs> the doctrine of like completed staff work. I don't know if it's still around, but like my uh, co-founder was in the military and he always talked about that. Right. So <laughs> yeah, I look for that. And like, and everybody is like, you know, you have good judgment. Do you get stuff done fast? Are you thorough? And do you work well with everybody else? So speaking of uh, specs here, how do you go about guiding the roadmap for your team? And I- I'm curious too, how that differs from, the way that you did it early on with a smaller team versus today? I'm always trying to get better at like developing the roadmap and, and guiding it. And, and I don't know, somehow I keep this huge like jumble of stuff in my head and try and keep it, uh, <laughs> like try and keep it organized in some way. Like I use a variety of like tools. So I'm like constantly taking like little notes myself and then we organize everything in Asana. And uh, so I'll start with like notes and organize everything in Asana and um, try and like combine like things into projects. And we'll do like, like one project, you know, one project at a time and try to talk collectively as a team and just collectively prioritize things trying to get us the biggest impact and do things with the biggest impact first. But we also, at the same time, try to balance things that give us an immediate impact versus things that have a more like long-term return for us. Right. Do you end up getting input from your team on it as well? Yeah, I'm like big on, I don't like to make decisions on my own. I'm big on like, uh, especially since we have such a good team of like you know, pretty smart people. I'm like really big on talking things over openly with everybody and, and making it a group process to come to a decision like what we're going to, what we're going to work on next. And and how often does that end up changing? You know, right now we meet bi-weekly and keeps, you know, discuss like what we did the pre prior and then like what we're planning on doing. And we also, kind of like maintain like individual like little dev tasks in Asana and then we have a high level roadmap in Google Docs of like here's our major projects and then there's like all of course like lots of like little tiny things like you know bug fixes and like <laughs> little tiny tasks that comprise like these bigger initiatives. I mean so for example we just did a big project to like start internationalizing the site. You know, so it's like at a high level in the roadmap. It's like, hey like internationalize the website and then in Asana we break that down into like all the 
things that need to happen in order for that to work. Like we need multi-currency, we need multi, uh, we need to support the metric system, we need to, I don't know, in, you know, inter- internationalize all the uh, content that we have in the YAML file. Like we need to like internationalize our help desk content. It's in a separate system. We need to, yeah. So I mean, that probably turned into like. I can't remember like dozens of like, little <laughs> tiny tasks. Why didn't we just go with the metric system to begin with? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. I think people in the United States would uh, unfortunately not like that. <laughs> how do you ensure developers are building the right thing? So in other words, how do you ensure that you're on the same page as the developers about what is going to get built? That they're building like what I'm expecting them to or that we're building like we're setting the right priorities? As in what you're expecting, yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, it's like that's pretty simple. I mean, we just spec things out in Asana. Everyone has things assigned to them. You know, they just work on the things that are, that are assigned to them. Like, I, I think in Asana, you, if you guys are familiar, you can put things in like your today list versus your upcoming list. And you know, when somebody's ready to start working on something, they'll just move it to their today list. And you can cross-reference Asana with with uh, GitHub. So I actually wanted to know the second meaning of it, which is, you know, how do you make sure that you're building the thing that you should be building at that point in time? Yeah, I mean, that's like the hardest <laughs> question to answer, <laughs> right? Because like, you know, you see these startups, like somebody's like working on something. I always look at like other companies telling you, you see somebody like working on something, you can, you can be working relentlessly on something, you see somebody else come up with like a, an idea that's like a different take on it and like that's the idea that takes off. So, you, you know, it's always hard to know. Like we spend a lot of time like polishing our experience and it's like a balance between obsessing over our current experience and um, like maybe experimenting with like new ideas so yeah i don't know like settings actually setting the roadmap's hard like we try to drive a lot of that through like our experience working with customers like what people are asking for but not maybe overindulging like what customers are asking for like i think i think what i said earlier basically the challenge is like figuring out the problems people are having and then trying to solve those problems in like the most elegant way so we try to like listen to our customers and see like what are the stumbling box they're encountering and then come up with solutions that are as elegant as possible that to, to solve those problems and that are going to have the highest impact on our growth rate but also balancing that with like so yeah like i said like things that have long-term payback like the internationalization project that we just did isn't an immediate return for us but it's like something we want to do long term we got starting it sometime <laughs> Okay, so uh, you know some of these uh, polished things that you talk about. Like, can you give me an example of something where you felt like you wanted to spend a little bit of time polishing a feature? Yeah, we come up with we finally come up with a good process for that. We we had a new C- CTO that just started like six months ago, and and we were all talking about how as our application like grew in size, we liked making things as nice as possible. So we, we were spending an inordinate amount of time like just polishing things, and so. Like we finally agreed that like whenever something is really small that's not gonna like make or break our experience that we want to be better, we just set it aside. We call it like a we have a project in Asana, we just call it like a rough edge. And whenever somebody finishes a project, like a major project, they can go into the rough edges queue and take a break from working on big stuff and just knock out a bunch of things that are smaller that we wanna get done at some point. So like we have, we just have a queue of like hundreds of like little tiny things that we want to do, and whenever somebody either finishes a big project or wants a break from a big challenge, they can go grab some of those and, and work on them. Okay, that makes sense. So, what do you feel like are some of the biggest productivity killers for your developer team? They might have a different opinion on this than me. We were just <laughs> talking about this like recently because this is like 
and you know interesting conversation having. But like for me, it's like you know incomplete specs and changing specs are are huge as a business person. Like from their perspective, it's like even though like we we started with Spree as an open source project, and even though like that was a great starting point for us. Um, there's a lot of code in there that does things because when, when you're building sprees and open source e-commerce framework, you're kind of building like use like a, for a wide variety of use cases and like sticker mills very specific needs. So they're like all that debt of like all this extra code to support like all these use cases that have nothing to do with what, what we're doing is a productivity killer. So they're keen to work on like ripping as much of that out and also getting rid of some like old concepts and replacing them with like more modernized way of, of doing things. But that's that's more interesting conversation to have with them than me. <laughs> Could you explain what you mean by incomplete specs and also changing specs? Yeah, so it's kind of like saying something like incomplete or vague, like add PayPal to the website. It's like, you know, how or make the site, you know, support multiple languages. Like, that's okay. Like, <laughs> that's kind of like incomplete to me because it's like, well, I mean, I think like more incomplete, like internationalized website, like that's kind of incomplete like what does that mean like do you want to support the metric system do you want to support multiple currencies or do you just want to internationalize the content and even like once you do that where does the content like live are you going to put that internationalized content in a subdomain a subdirectory you're going to support a multi-domain strategy what happens when a person from italy hits the english version of the site like what do you show them do you say hey you're on the english version of the site you want to switch or do you just automatically redirect them so I think like having your specs as concrete as possible so when dev starts working on it, everything's already figured out rather than like kind of figuring out while you're doing development. That that can be very like time consuming because people will go assume things and build them and you're like, wait, that's not exactly what I wanted. Have there been any things that have helped in making your specs more concrete? I think it's something I've just like always like, I don't know. I, I, well, like early on, like I mentioned, like the first developer that we had on, on our team and prior to that, like when we were working with a consultancy and it was, you, you were paying a premium for developers. Um, I was like, man, I don't want to waste anyone's time because you know, we only had one developer or it was like very expensive their time, you know, like hundreds of over hundreds of dollars an hour or whatever. So you're like, start thinking of like, how can I save as much time as possible? So I just started putting a lot of effort towards like, saving our developers time by explaining things like clearly and concisely. And it's pretty similar to how we go about like doing customer service. Like when we're interacting with our customers, we don't want to waste their time either. So one of the things I told our customer service team is like explain things in a clear, concise manner in the fewest words possible. So that, you know, you give the customer what he wants to know and don't waste <laughs> any of his time. And he can like take action immediately and do what he has to do, what he or her has to do. Um, and in software development, you know, I just kind of like thought it, it the same way. Like I want to give somebody specs in the fewest words possible that explains the entirety of like what they need to accomplish so there's like nothing like nothing left to open to our interpretation they're also not sitting there like reading this like massive essay that's like rambling through like what what you want i've seen you know people write specs that are (laughs) much more wordy i try to be as concise as possible because you know even that's like a time waster for for a developer sitting there you know a 500 word doc instead of reading like a few quick bullet points you know, it's funny that uh, you mentioned that, and I, I like hearing that from you because it makes me feel better for getting stressed out on the other side of the table, you know, because, <laughs> you know, realistically, I understand that part of my job doing software consulting is that I'm there to help translate, you know, I'm there to help guide and make sure that I'm building exactly what it is that, you know, you want built, right? But at the same time, it is very frustrating to spend two or three hours on the phone talking about something for the nth time that 
probably could have <laughs> been clarified on paper somewhere or, you know, just getting something and then needing to go back and spending time on the phone. And, you know, you probably could have spent the 10 or 15 minutes writing it out beforehand. You know, that happens. And, you know, I'm not sure if people were just of the expectation that, oh, well, they're billing an hourly rate, so they don't really care one way or another. But it's really frustrating to me. You know, yeah. I, I don't feel good spending clients' money on stuff that is not my biggest help to them. My biggest help to them is doing the things that they can't do. And the things that they can't do are not being a good founder and trying to elucidate their ideas, you know? Yeah, no, I think what you said is important and also like relates to the topic of like, you know, as a non-technical person, how do you attract technical people? <laughs> like that's the value like you can bring or, you know, I try to bring as a non-technical person to our team is like to, <laughs> I think I, you know, like all developers have had the experience that you're talking about and like when they work with you and see that like you value their time and like, yeah, you value their time by explaining things clearly and not just like making them run around in circles like it, you know, helps cement your value as a non-technical person. <laughs> Yeah, and there are there are so many cases we see where you get a spec that's like a big legal document. And I do remember <laughs> back in the day, like combing through it line by line, trying to pick apart what exactly they meant. Yeah, like one simple rule I had like early on was, um, you know, we we drew a lot of our specs, and it's like if you can't draw it, like don't hand it off to a developer. Like <laughs> if you can't even like draw what you want this thing to look like, and that sounds like weird, but I mean, I found that experience. Like I I would write specs sometimes, and I would like try to like draw the uh interaction and i can't remember any specific examples but i remember like playing around in uh balls like mock-ups and trying to like actually come up with how this spec was going to work in, in practice and real and i was just like i have no idea how i can make this work elegantly and i was like oh we're not going to build that feature never mind <laughs> so you know one thing i actually want to say on this topic and i've been feeling this way for a while and i couldn't really put my finger on it but after hearing this often enough i think that what upsets people about the process of trying to actually sit down and draw something out. And you'll hear all the time people say, it's because I can't draw, I'm not a very good artist, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's it. I think that's covering up the real issue, which is that you're having a hard time putting your thoughts on paper and actually making it clear what it is that you want. And that's why it's difficult. And it's easy oh, yeah. <laughs> to write this like legalese type document than it is for you to actually clarify it down into something, distill it into something that's easy. I agree. It's like, I think you're dead on. <laughs> it's like an easy cop out to like, like, oh, you know, I can't draw. Like, I can't draw at all. Like, exactly. It's that's it's like people who say that they're, you know, not good at math or something. I, I understand reasonably there are people who maybe haven't gotten the best math education in the world. Okay. Got it. But realistically, like I couldn't draw coming into this and you know the first time that i sat down and really was like i'm gonna put pencil to paper and just try and do this it was tough and it wasn't tough because my drawing didn't come out looking good nobody really cares i'm not putting it up in the louvre you know um it's just we're trying to make sure that both of us see something that could end up becoming a web application or an ios application and that's the hard part yeah. yeah, and there's a lot of decisions that haven't yet been made, and you're forced to make those decisions, and that's what can be mentally exhausting. Yeah, no, I think the process of drawing the feature is like, yeah, pretty important <laughs> if you want to save save your developers time, and also like, yeah, proof to yourself whether like the idea you have is actually like a good one or a doable one. Like, you know, if, if you can't figure out how to do it, <laughs> yeah, how to map it out, uh, you know, with pen and paper with a, you know marker and a whiteboard like chances are your developer's not able to figure out very easily either (laughs) or if he is like he's a lot smarter than you are (laughs) yeah absolutely absolutely 
Going back again to this first developer and then scaling your team a little bit further beyond him, um, you know, you've continued to add more people onto your team at this point. Can you tell me what sort of challenges you've had as you've scaled up your team from one to N? Really, like you know, our biggest challenge, which I, I was like fortunately able to solve, was getting a strong like CTO or somebody that wanted to help me build the team. So our like original developer was an amazing like arc- architect and like like amazing at like thinking through how to solve problems, like phenomenal at it, but didn't really want to be involved in like managing the team. He enjoyed like you know solving problems. But, you know, he actually helped a lot. He, he had a guy in mind that he, he, he wanted us to uh, bring on pretty much the whole time. And I, I didn't think it was possible. So he, he wanted us to actually try, try to track the CTO from Spree Commerce. And I didn't really think it was possible. And we kept talking. <laughs> and and uh, finally, I said, well, you know, I'll take a shot at it. And, you know, I was able to get him to come on board. And, uh, like, he's been a tremendous help in, like, taking over that end of things for us. So you know, we're now we're in a situation where we have, like, a, no, a really great team. So, but, so in what in what ways then has he been, you know, so instrumental in helping to scale that up? I mean, taking on like the responsibility, like the full like responsibility for owning owning the the process of software development rather than just like the process of, like figuring out how to solve problems. So, like, just owning responsibility for everything, like you know, making sure we can execute our roadmap at the pace that we want to execute it, making sure like defects are being resolved at the <laughs> That in a, in a timely manner, like making sure that like somebody owns the full stack of you know everything, thinking about everything from like hosting to testing to everything. Like um, whereas like our, our uh, original lead developers like prolific in terms of like thinking through how to like solve problems and helping us solve problems in a, in a great way and and thinking through like the technical architecture. He wasn't as interested in and and all that cuz like really like you know dealing with defects and dealing with like recruiting and managing people and training people and onboarding people is a distraction from you know problem solving and working actually like just working on the code so that was like the one thing that was like missing in our, our organization and we saw that like again just through bringing on the right person to round out our team and that's been pretty awesome yeah well that's uh great that you were able to end up bringing somebody so strong on so good yeah. on you <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, the, the, I mean, that was, again, goes back to the importance of, like, hiring a great person initially, because without, like, like David Nordsar was a, was the first developer to join us, without him, you know, he wouldn't have pointed me in a direction of saying, like, hey, you should go out and hire Brian Quinn's our CTO now, and he, he pointed me in the direction of hiring Brian, and, and Brian wouldn't have came on board if David wasn't already with us, because, I mean, it wouldn't have made as much sense to him, he already knew David, and knew he was, like, a really strong developer, so... You know, without David, I would never been able to pull that off. So, right, just, yeah. So, yeah, your first person is incredibly important. If you, Anthony, were to have a time machine and pick whatever time machine makes you most comfortable—Tardis, hot tub, time ha, machine, whatever it is. Tardis. Okay, cool. Tardis. All right. So you're you're you've got Tardis, <laughs> and you can go back and meet Anthony prior to starting Sticker Mule, but you only have like the next two minutes to tell him like the most important thing that he should know before starting this company. What would you tell him? Yeah, I'll probably honestly say, like, don't screw up on, like, hiring David. <laughs> like, no, honestly, I mean, that's, yeah. I think it was, like, pretty pivotal to us because, yeah, if it went another way, like, it would have been hard for us to execute to the extent that we did. Right. So, really, that one person really is so critical. Yeah. I mean, not to uh, kind of, like, sound like I can't answer that fits the show, but I think it's it's really, like, pretty true. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a great way to lead this off. Well, 
Thank you again so much for taking the time to come on and talk with us. This has been fantastic. So can you tell us where we can keep up with you online? Yeah, so I'm just at AC132 on uh, Twitter. And uh, also check out at StickerMule on Twitter and, of course, like StickerMule.com. Okay, excellent. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code Podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at TalkingCode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, go to TalkingCode.com slash ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.